Hello, friend, and welcome to Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a longtime medical writer who shifted from a career as a trauma OR nurse into academia and then transitioned from academia into freelance writing in continuing medical education. I've built a sustainable six-figure business that specializes in creating and evaluating educational content for health professionals, and I use my expertise in education and healthcare to guide rich, honest conversations about the practice of creating CME content with intention. And I teach medical writers how to create CME content with confidence. Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME. Come and join our thoughtful, provocative and valuable conversations about adult learning, teaching platforms, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME professional. Wherever you are in the content creation process, If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Hi, friend. Alex Housen here, host of the Write Medicine podcast. In today's episode, we're focusing on intersectionality and equity, which are closely linked concepts. On the one hand, Intersectionality acknowledges the complex nature and complex interactions between people, while equity emphasizes the fair distribution of resources and opportunities. My guest is Lee Beamer, who embodies intersectionality at the very beginning of this episode by acknowledging the many layers that make up each and every one of us. And in today's episode, He encourages listeners to consider intersectionality as a concept, and we explore ways to build equity in the health professions. As Chief Medical Officer of the Association of Community Cancer Centres, Lee describes its response to health disparities that the pandemic exacerbated, and how ACCC acted as a convener to connect individual community needs with the mechanisms necessary to address inequities. Join us for a conversation about how continuing education, professional development, and the oncology community can give form to intersectionality by asking the right questions, bringing the right people to the table, 
and listening. Welcome, Lee. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's delightful to see you. I know that we've we've worked on some projects over the years, and uh, so it's good to to have this time to just have a, a, a you know a conversation about uh, disparities yeah. and equity in cancer care. So to get us started, could you please tell listeners who you are and something about your professional journey and what you do? Yeah. So my day job is uh, chief medical officer for the Association of Community Cancer Centers. We like to call ourselves ACCC because that's a heck of a lot easier to say. But, But I also like to share some things about myself just to kind of round out and talk to intersectionality. So I'm an oncology pharmacist by training. I think it's really amazing that as a pharmacist, you're able to do so many different things with your uh, profession, career, credentials, etc. And I decided Mm. after about 15 years in clinical practice to work in a community program to round out what otherwise had been primarily academic medicine. And I Mm. took on some additional responsibilities in cancer research and program administration and in so doing, I, I became aware of ACCC and the resources that are created for community teams. And that was sort of a natural transition then after six years in community practice to take on my current role and provide clinical oversight for the education and advocacy resources, toolkits, instruments that are done on behalf of community programs and practices and the multidisciplinary cancer care team members who work at them. I'm also, uh, importantly, a lover of playing the piano. And I love to sing. And I actually... I did not know that. Yeah, I studied in college piano and vocal performance, chemistry and biology, all before I went to pharmacy school. So like glutton for punishment, but wanted to explore a lot of passions I am a huge reader of anything Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers. (laughs) My very first tattoo actually came from the jacket of Agatha Christie's first novel. So, uh, (laughs) oh, excellent. I'm a a big murder mystery buff. And a lover of acerbic language, if you like Dorothy Sayers. Oh, Dorothy, (laughs) Dorothy, Dorothy. She's, she's my kind of woman. And, um, I'm a hiker. Uh, I, I just, I, I am fortunate enough to call Asheville, North Carolina home, and I love to be grounded, feet touching the earth, breathing the mountain air, and if there's a little Mm. running water nearby for negative ion therapy, I am all about that. I love that. What what a really rich kind of description of of where you are right now, you know, both professionally and and personally. And you know, we live near the mountains too, and I agree. It's there's that great John Muir, a fellow Scot, of course, quote about we all need bread and beauty, a pra- a place to play and a place to pray in. Yep. So you get all of that with with nature, and yeah. uh, I think we really we need that more than ever now, and especially for people who are working in cancer care and in the oncology yep. community. Yep. That's why I offer it, Alex. Actually, because on so many calls and meetings and symposiums. You know, they ask you who you are, what you do, and we all lead with these very technical, credential, discipline, uh, you know, licensure heavy ways. And it's like, yeah, but that, that can't be all of you. And I don't want to point a finger if anybody does, you know, 100% self-affiliate that way. It's not bad. It's just to say, 
I want all of us to acknowledge our humanity and I want all of us to appreciate that we need things to ground us and motivate us and refill our gas tanks. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't talk about it, you know, it, it continues to be the taboo that we've got to break down to appreciate each other's various, again, intersectionalities. So talking about it, I feel is really, really important. So everybody knows it's okay to talk about it. No, I agree. And I'm really glad that you you did that. And I do want to ask, you know, if you're seeing, well, I'll ask this question first, are you seeing more of that? And have you seen more of that in the last few years? And is it something that in your role, you encourage when you are, you know, when you are leading meetings, whether they're online or now, I guess, a little bit more in place yeah. and uh, in person? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Alex. I was a remote worker pre-pandemic and struggled, honestly, in a context of not a lot of others working remotely with this sense mm -hmm. of, you know, if there's more work to be done, I will just keep working, right? Because my office is my home. And yeah, I think a lot of people had this perception before the pandemic, if they weren't remote workers, that your feet were up and you were in sweatpants on the couch and, you know, you were... <laughs> <laughs> whatever, watching your kids or your four-letter furry kiddos or, you know, I mean, it was this kind of free-for-all and you barely ever worked. And it's like, no. And then, you know, during the pandemic for new remote workers, I cannot tell you how many times I was asked by people, how do you do this? How do you turn it off? How do you not respond to somebody at one in the morning who sends you a Teams chat? And it's Ugh. so important to say, you know, I need to establish professional boundaries, personal boundaries. It's important to start a meeting asking an icebreaker question or just following up with your colleagues about how was your night? How was your weekend? How's your mom or dad who was struggling? Or, you know, something about this sense of I know you exist outside of here and that's important and mm -hmm. needs to be fostered as well. And yeah, we all forget it from time to time. And sometimes you just launch right into something because you don't want to forget it or you have two seconds, you know, but where and when we can acknowledging the humanity, asking the questions, taking a deep breath and just saying, how are you doing before we launch into a 20 item agenda is so mm -hmm. critical. And we've got to continue to support that and foster that. Because as I look ahead and I think about, you know, the digital divide and so much big data, AI, mm -hmm. machine learning, we can't let that go. Mm -hmm. That has to be a focus for all of us. And of course, in, in, in oncology, a lot of those things are writ large, especially when you talk about big data and AI as well, in terms of getting into genetics, coding and all sorts of oh, yeah things or reading genetic codes. Yep. Not that I know very much about that, but you know, it's in my periphery. And what you're saying speaks very much to your personal values as well as what ACCC saw and managed from the beginning of the pandemic yep. in terms of how your members were really being exposed to a lot of extremely challenging situations. Yes. And part of that exposure or one of the things that came with that exposure was the exacerbation of disparities in cancer care. So can you talk a little bit about how those disparities, which of course existed pre-pandemic, yeah. but how they were exacerbated and how you saw ACCC members responding yep. to 
really some fairly established and uh, considerable fault lines in terms of health equity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, many of which were, to your point, exacerbated by the pandemic, pre-existed the pandemic, grew up in a horrific environment of systemic and structural Mm -hmm. racism and social injustice. And we're, we're really only just now beginning to even understand and try to dismantle some of those things. So, you know, digital divide, absolutely. And it isn't just about remote worker access to high integrity Wi-Fi, right? It's about facilitating Mm -hmm. kids who are having to work from home doing their schoolwork. And how do you have multiple people running, you know, data crunching meetings in these virtual environments where mom's working, dad's working, dad and dad are working, mom and mom are taking care of kids who are at home. And what does this mean? And I think, you know, it just kind of goes from there. I think we've all read about and the great resignation has really hit us in lots of different ways. But you know, we're, we're in the ACCC world dealing with essential workers who have been on the front lines mm. of this from the beginning and never got a oh, break. Yeah. And, you know, th- there have been staff layoffs and there have been people who have had horrific burnout. And there are people who have struggled with a sense of how do I mitigate resiliency in my staff who have seen awful, tragically high numbers of deaths, you know, in in young and old alike. And what, what can I do to help those individuals when, you know, community programs were hit harder in many ways, because you're already pulling from smaller pools of qualified skilled workers. And so, so, you know, less is less when you're working with less. I think, you know, a lot has been written and needs to continue to be written about racial and ethnic minority differences in healthcare outcomes related to the pandemic. And it's, mm-hmm. it's all of the various reasons why that took place, right? It's individuals from those historically minoritized and marginalized populations live in more crowded spaces and they work in service mm-hmm. jobs which means that they are in closer contact with individuals and they're more likely to take public transportation. And what can we as a professional organization who represents the multidisciplinary cancer care team do to highlight national resources available and ask questions to elucidate better and understand local communities' needs? Because one isn't the same everywhere you go across the country. and. That's again, that idea of intersectionality that I started out with, you know, one black community is not another same black community. And that's true for Latinx and Hispanic individuals, those from lower socioeconomic status groups, people who would identify as more rural versus metro urban. So it's just, it, it, it really facilitated, but also begged this awareness and education and tailoring of resources Mm -hmm. and prioritizing of populations for that entire spectrum of individuals. Mm -hmm. And I guess finally, I would just end with, and in so doing, trying to 
acknowledge inequitable access to all of the supportive care services that are so critical, mm. but that maybe don't get the face time of radiation and surgery and treatment, right? So we were saying earlier, it's genetic counseling services, and it's clinical pharmacy services, and it's financial and patient navigation, mm -hmm. and it's the efforts of social workers and mental health professionals for patients with cancer. And access to those services by the patients and caregivers who need them, that were all heavily impacted by the pandemic, that continue to be problems today, and that you know, folks like us need to be aware of and address through education and advocacy campaigns and measure success of change in knowledge, change in competence, change in behaviors. And, and, you know, it, it, if we look at it positively, it's created a ton of opportunity and an amazing time of synergy to work together to try to address some of these huge historic gaps and deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about working together, are there, you know, particular partner organizations or collaborators that, you know, an organization like ACCC kind of routinely works with? And I guess another question there is, what are some of the mechanisms to ensure that the organizations that need to be involved in working together mm -hmm. to address disparities and, and build equity in cancer care? are working together? Yeah. And that's a kind of big advocacy question, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. Let me try and answer them in reverse. Anymore, I don't think it's who's around the table today that we should be asking ourselves as the question. I think the question is who isn't here? How do we get them here? And mm -hmm. why didn't we think of them in the beginning? But, but it's just to say, oh my gosh, that's you, you know, it's like, Yes, you have to have racial ethnic diversity around the table. Yes, you need a diversity of disciplines. Let's also think about the community organizations, community health centers, community navigators who need to be here at the table. Please don't forget patients, patient advocacy organizations. Let's not forget policy people. We can't have these conversations without also inviting to the table payers. Let's make sure caregivers are represented and we stop talking about them and we start inviting them to the table, closing our mouths and letting them talk. And how powerful can it be if we act as conveners, bring the right people to the table and then stop talking? Mm -hmm. Which is hard in a podcast, but that's that's really uh, you know what I want to say. Like that's that's so important. So so, Alex, we we do have the benefit as a as a national organization of getting to work with some of the best and brightest, and, and I'm humbled mm -hmm. by that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, the American mm -hmm. Society of Clinical Oncology and ACCC have worked together to address, for example, the need for more diverse clinical trial participants. You know, and, and, and we can talk about that because I think that and the work mm -hmm. that has come of it has been so very, very helpful. ACCC is fortunate enough to also manage 23 of the country's oncology state societies, which kind of gives us a nice mm -hmm. state level, regional level feel mm -hmm. in certain, you know, practice challenge areas. And 
We are doing some really interesting stuff in rural Appalachia right now with lung, colorectal, and cervical cancer screening and early detection. Mm -hmm. That work, fortunately, has been highlighted by the White House and the Renewed Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And those are just two examples of, you know, ways that we partner, but really impactful, important work. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the partnership with ASCO. And if you could just kind of describe for listeners what that partnership focused on and what the outcomes have been, because it's kind of timely because of the FDA's announcement to, you know, insist that there's a clinical trial participation equity plan, you know, going forward, I think from July, is it 2023 or 2024? I can't remember. You'll know. 2023. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, certainly exacerbated during the pandemic with a degree of success in improving racial diversity representation in COVID trials, right? Which led to the Mm emergency use authorizations Mm -hmm. and later approvals of some of the COVID-19 vaccines. But it's been known for years. Lots of people have published on this, you know, how abysmal, quite honestly, the rates of non-Caucasian clinical trial participants have been in all research and certainly in cancer research. Mm -hmm. And so ASCO and ACCC came together under the purview of then-Presidents Lori Pierce and Randy Oyer to say, listen, we have to stop talking about this and let's do something about it. So Mm -hmm. under the direction of an expert steering committee and working groups who informed the, the work done, the two organizations created a site self-assessment tool that cancer programs can use to assess how equitable they are approaching a diverse patient population about the possibility of engagement in a cancer clinical trial. And we worked on an implicit bias training program for a multidisciplinary cancer research team to try to raise awareness and change knowledge and behaviors about our own implicit and explicit biases and the implications of social injustices that have plagued the U.S. healthcare system since its creation. It's case-based. There's a facilitation guide that will allow programs and users to continue having discussions because we're human. We all have biases. So so this isn't oh, a, sure. you have them and I don't or vice versa. This is mm-hmm. we all got them. And it's about all of us. And it's informed by society because race is a totally social construct. And let's talk about them because awareness can lead to change in knowledge and behaviors attitudes. Are you seeing more uh, evidence of awareness among your members of their own implicit bias? Well, I will say... Let me try and address it in two different ways, Alex. So there's the anecdotal, Lee, I took the training. I'm asking my team to take the training. We've had conversations after having taken the training and it's changed my perspective. I thought I was aware and I learned things about myself I had never acknowledged. And and 
And that's, that's that's very powerful, powerful, right? You know, and you know very well, right? I mean, those qualitative takeaways, let us not forget the power and impact of a qualitative statement like that. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's, you know, we have had the good fortune to publish some of the results of that ASCO ACCC collaboration and the outcomes from the implicit bias training program. And just really quickly, like, the, the mean percentage change in knowledge of the participants in those pilots increased by 19 to 45% when you were talking about, for example, causes of health disparities, and mm-hmm. 10 to 30% when you were talking about strategies to address implicit bias and diversity concerns at my program. And I think very importantly, those knowledge increases were sustained at six weeks above baseline rankings, yeah. right? So so interesting, yeah. It is interesting, right? It's like a lot of people mm-hmm. say, yeah, just increasing awareness of it isn't going to do anything about it. And I understand that that sentiment, that possibility. But now we have some data from the pilots to actually suggest, no, it, it literally changed knowledge and, you know, perceptions of behavior, and it was sustained at six weeks. So mm-hmm. I think education and awareness is a very practical and appropriate place to start. And we have mm-hmm. to follow that up with engagement and collaboration and resources and checking back in and disseminating our results and making sure we're doing all of those good scientific practice steps. And and that sort of very much speaks to the issue of the relationship of education to all sorts of other practices and processes to reinforce what people learn. Like, you know, I think that one of the, you know, for people who are critical of education particularly continuing medical education, yeah. whether it's, you know, formal CME or accredited CME or member-focused education of the sort that ACCC does. You know, there are critics that kind of say that, you know, education, as you said, it, it doesn't do a whole lot on its own. Yeah. Awareness raising is, you know, a nice to have, but it's not really going to change anything. But the way I hear it is it's a par- education is a powerful precursor to the other things that organizations like ACCC do in terms of advocacy and reinforcement yep. and tools and resources and the, and the things that you were talking about. I did want to ask about the Appalachian yeah, study. Yeah, of course. Because it seems that, you know, we know that the, 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 the data for inequities in cancer care are deeply entrenched in rural communities and there are all sorts of access challenges and you know and have been for decades and obviously these became much more apparent during the the pandemic so i'd really like to hear a little bit more about what it is that you're doing in that sort of i i'm somewhat familiar with that community you know i spent time in the kentucky west virginia sort of mountain uh mountain areas so I have a sense of what living in some of those communities is like. Yeah. So I'm really interested in in what you're doing there, what you're seeing, and what your hope for outcomes is. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the question. So I am a transplant to Appalachia, but I've been in North Carolina now for three years and live amongst some of the unique challenges of these communities. And 
it's really hard to ignore some of the decreased from pre-pandemic levels of cancer screening, which have happened across the United States Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, which are on the rise, but are still lagging from pre-pandemic levels. And some of those decreases uh, in screenings are most notable in rural Appalachia. I think a lot of people don't understand, but Appalachia actually spans 13 states in the east and southeast part of the U.S., and it represents some of the lowest socioeconomic status, lowest observed or measured degrees of health literacy in the country, most at-need individuals in terms of insurance or supplementary insurance beyond government programs like Medicaid and Medicare. Mm -hmm. And that all influences access, right? I mean, there's lots of data that suggests that. So ACCC in partnership with six state oncology societies from amongst Appalachia came together in 2022 And really said, listen, there are unique challenges, there are systemic concerns, there are resources which we believe together we can synergize and help create and disseminate better than any particular component organization alone. Mm -hmm. And we really want to rally around the support and improvements in infrastructure to lead to improvements and outcomes for this particular patient population. And Trying to focus on cancer screening in particular because of its downstream Mm -hmm. effects at preventing late stage disease and, of course, poorer outcomes as a result. Lung cancer, colorectal cancer, and cervical cancer screening and early detection and patient education and clinical trial availability all became a focus of the ACCA through a very uh, evidence based landscape analysis process that was conducted. And mm-hmm. uh, ACCC was fortunate to receive uh, funding from AstraZeneca, for example, to launch a specific rural lung cancer screening initiative in rural Appalachia, because there was mm-hmm. such tremendous potential to be achieved because lung cancer screening rates are so low in these communities relative to national benchmarks, which are already low, right? But also to together try to build a coalition so that we might be able to demonstrate what good looks like in terms of patient education, community engagement and partnerships, policy at the state level, regional level to support lung cancer screening, and then create a scalable or translatable model with Mm -hmm. the state societies and ACCC to take this to other parts of the country or other at-risk patient populations. So rural Appalachia, high, high lung cancer mortality, high rates of tobacco abuse disorder, low rates to access to primary care, low rates to access Mm -hmm. to accredited radiologic screening facilities. But there are systems that are doing this well. There is potential in these communities. And so we are coming together. We've completed a landscape analysis. We are this year into early next, forming a coalition of people foot on the ground, uh, successful programs from other places, 
individuals who are passionate about patient access and education. And then we are seeking programs who will help us demonstrate this and and build a best practice, if you will, for rural Mm. Appalachia so that we can publish and share the learnings and, and get to that scalable, translatable model I spoke to. I mean, that's really amazing. And and one of the things that's always struck me about ACCC is the ability to root out examples of best practice yeah. and to really kind of find the people who are, who've already found the workarounds, who've already done the really hard and deep work of trying right. to figure out how they can use the resources they have to improve where they can. Do you find that other organizations look to ACCC for direction, for guidance, for information about how to, you know, do the kind of work that you do? That's a really kind question, first of all. I'm humbled to say that I have had people come to me and say that. What I tell them is, (laughs) you know, we didn't create that model. That isn't our unique, innovative idea. But enough people in the membership have come to us with questions of what does good look like? We've been able to find enough examples of best practice. Mm -hmm. And we aren't afraid to publish pragmatic solutions, Mm -hmm. knowing that there's more questions, more data, more to come, other good examples. And this isn't the end-all be-all, and the conversation doesn't stop here. And so that's, if anything, what I try to bring to conversations where people are saying, tell us what ACCC does and how we can do it. You know, this is one way it's been effective. People really respond to it because if I can do it and I look like you and you did it, that tells more and more people that they can do it too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's keep the conversation going. Let's make sure we're inviting new people to the table. Let's make sure we're not asking the same questions over and over because the questions need to change as time marches forward. Yeah, absolutely. But it is that kind of marriage of pragmatism and and rigor yeah. that is kind of unique. I have I have do you have time for two more questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So one is one is about the pharmaceutical industry and the commercial side and whether you're seeing changes in the way that pharma thinks about these wider issues and their influence on on people's health. And you know, I, I see more more kind of public conversation around social determinants of health, even though, you know, we've had data on social determinants and health for decades, but it seems that more people are talking about that now. It seems that more people are talking about health equity and disparities. Again, even though, you know, a lot of this data have been out there for a very long time. There, there is some, there is some energy and purpose and direction and focus that, you know, is, is relatively the words that are coming into my head are new and fresh, and those aren't the right words, but I'll go with those for yeah. now. So are you seeing that the pharmaceutical industry is is also having a more connected relationship to these wider social, political, and economic issues that are part of the lived experience of cancer and part of cancer care? Yeah. Yeah, Alex, I the, the quick and easy answer is absolutely. I would be hard pressed to identify one of our corporate members who, for example, does not have a chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer in 2023. 
Of course, it needs to go beyond that, though. And some of them have. I think some of them have done things like integrated patient and advisory groups or boards into the medical affairs process or the outreach into patient at-risk communities or in the creation, design, conduct, and sustainability of clinical trials under portfolio ABC for pharmaceutical manufacturer XYZ, you know? And I think a few of them are going further and trying to address further upstream inequities, uh, contributing Mm -hmm. to discussions of policy change to make access more equitable. And I think some are starting to talk about how do I fulfill my mission as a healthcare organization by bringing people together to inform needs assessments of local communities on behalf of Mm. local communities. Not what I think you need. Not what I've read other people published in articles is a concern for group one, two, or people who identify as three, four. (laughs) And so I, I, I see progress. I think there's great potential and we've got to keep asking them to push the envelope. You mentioned it earlier, Alex, but the FDA's requirement for diversity action plans, uh, at least for clinical mm-hmm. trials, to be more tailored to the intended individuals at greater risk for lots of reasons is, is a, is a real granular step to asking questions about intended populations and needs of people who will be supporting the data to support an application for potential consideration of drug approval. (laughs) And that's a step, again, that got us to where we are today. And that's great, but there's a lot more opportunity to be realized there. Right. No, that's a that's a really fulsome answer. And I, I love the way you're able to pull together kind of disparate ideas, groups, and concepts and string them together <laughs> in, a, in a, a comprehensive sentence. You started this conversation by talking about intersectionality. Yeah. And so could you share what you mean by that for listeners? Because intersectionality is one of these terms, I think, that for some is still challenging. Yeah. For some may not have an operationali- operationalization. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I get what it is. How do I put that into practice? Yeah. So, you know, I just invite you to kind of share your final thoughts on that concept. Yeah. I am, um, I'm an empath, Alex. I am a husband and a brother and a son. I am a friend. I am a professional. I'm a pharmacist. I'm a cancer care specialist. I'm a cancer survivor. I believe I'm an educator. I'm a lover of quantitative data, and I'm learning to love qualitative data more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a writer. I'm a reader. I'm a singer. I'm a hiker. I'm complicated. We're all complicated. Right. But it isn't enough to say, my name's Lee Beamer, and I'm the chief medical officer at the Association of Community Cancer Centers, and even begin to think you know me at all. Mm-hmm. But if over time, as we develop a relationship and I become more comfortable, there are things I begin to 
show about myself in the proverbial peeling of the onion. And that to me is intersectionality. And it's the acknowledgement, not just that I have many layers, but everybody else does as well. And so how do our parts interact with each other's parts? And there is great opportunity and promise in the interaction of parts. And there is also great negative and potentially cataclysmic energy that can come when parts interact with Mm. other parts. So it takes a great deal of mindfulness and awareness and openness and willingness to explore. Because when you do this work, you're going to find out things about yourself you didn't know were true about yourself either. Mm -hmm. And, And even if you're not able to go down that road today and you say, Lee, that's a bunch of hokum and I'm not ready to put myself out there. I want to acknowledge that other people are there. That's how they live. There is great potential and power in acknowledging this about all of us. And just being willing to say uh, intersectionality as a concept uh, is that. It's it's just one way of looking at how complex a human is. And that interaction with another human is very complex by inherent nature. And there's such beauty in beginning to appreciate intersectionality of each other. It's self to self. It's self to other single. It's self to others plural. It's self to system at the macro level. And you just begin to appreciate how beautiful it can be all around you and how much we all need help and how very related we all are in our own unique ways. That's a really beautiful explanation. And I appreciate that you were willing to be open and that you bring such self-awareness because I think self-awareness is absolutely key to, to intersectionality. And that's something that as a society, we can all, we can all work on. And it is a practice. And so Lee Beamer, educator, empath, (laughs) hiker, many, many things, many, many people, many, many layers. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. For me. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, you're kind. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write w-r-i-t-e dash medicine dash podcast and while you're there don't forget to subscribe to the right medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence and thank you for listening today word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favorable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.